0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, The Priceless Treasure of Jesus, with a message titled, Jesus, Our Brother. So let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews 2, verses 10 to 13, as we join Dr. Neufeld now.
1: I begin today by reading our text, which is Hebrews 2, 10 to 13. Now, if you have a brother, I suspect that your evaluation of your brother depends a great deal on your experiences with him. If your brother is your older brother, that's especially the case. Now, I need to say at the outset that I actually have an older brother who also happens to be one of my very best friends. I'm delighted with the older brother that God has given me. But I know that families being what they are and sin being what it is, not everyone is as fond of their older brother as I am. And I mention that because when we read the text today, it really says something that is, if you think about it, quite audacious. I'm quite comfortable with calling Jesus Lord and God, my Messiah, along with the words that Hebrews describes. That is, he's the heir of all things. He's the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact imprint of the divine nature. He's the one who sits at the right hand of the Father, the one through whom all things came into being, the one who upholds the universe it is in my thinking, the very thing that I look forward to the most, to see him in heaven and to fall on my face before him and worship him as my Lord and my God. Nothing that I can think of fills me with greater joy than that. But this text in Hebrews, well, you know, in my experience as a pastor, I'm not the only one. Listen, many people have complained to me What appears to be, especially in our day, an over-familiarity with Jesus and a lack of proper reverence and an unwillingness to embrace him as he is, we treat him not as our great God to be worshipped and revered, but rather in an overly familiar way. Going back to my brother, as much as I love him and I enjoy the relationship we have, I have no inclination in the world to bow in obedience to him. Yet in spite of this, the book of Hebrews calls us, his followers, calls us Jesus' brothers. And you might ask, how did we go from the first chapter of Hebrews, which extols the superiority of Christ over everything, declaring if we've lost Jesus, we've lost that which is of preeminent worth? That was the word to Jewish Christians who, because of persecution, were tempted to leave Jesus and revert to Judaism. To them it was said, don't you realize who Jesus is if you desert him? You'd be rightfully condemned for having abandoned so great a salvation. And so I say it again. How do we go from the exalted language of Hebrews chapter 1 to now hearing Jesus saying that he's not ashamed to call his people, those who've surrendered their lives to him, to call them his brothers and sisters? It almost seems that we've gone from the language of worship, you know, to the language of, "Ah oh, shucks, he's just an older brother. But if we think that, we miss something. So let's slow down and follow the author's line of thought. We began Hebrews chapter 2 first by warning against falling away from Christ. And then we said that where Adam failed and all of us who are the children of Adam have failed along with our first parent. Where Adam failed, Christ has triumphed, never sinning, perfectly obedient to the Father. His perfect righteousness results in all things placed under his feet. But Hebrews 2 isn't done. In the present moment, we're told, we don't see everything subjected to him. The final day has not yet come, but we do see Jesus taking upon himself our human nature and suffering death. And furthermore, that death was for everyone who put their trust in him. Well, very well. Let's come to our passage today. And it begins with the words, for it is fitting. Now, that word is the first word in the sentence. The writer means it's appropriate. Let me give an example of that. In Ephesians 5 verse 3, Paul is speaking about appropriate conduct among Christians. He says, "...sexual immorality, all impurity, all materialism, greed, must never be found among Christians, for the absence of these things," he says, "...is proper." See, that's the word, proper, or fitting. So when you think of the Christian community, sexual purity, generous attitude towards others, that's proper, that's fitting behavior among believers. Here's another example, First Timothy 2, 9-10. Paul's speaking about the proper demeanor of godly Christian women. They pray, he says. They're free of quarreling. They dress modestly, not provocatively or ostentatiously. And then he adds, this is proper for women who profess godliness. That is, this is the kind of demeanor you'd expect because it goes naturally with godliness. So let's go back to Hebrews 2, verse 10. It is fitting, it's proper, it's consistent, it's what one would expect. That God the Father should make God the Son perfect through suffering. That's the point here. It's fitting, it's proper, it's right, it's good, it's decent that our Jesus, the great image of the invisible God, should be the object of horrible suffering. And that's the point. But before we get to why that's the case, let's look at all the details along the way. It's fitting that he, and by he, he means God the Father. So it's fitting that God the Father, and then the writer of Hebrews stops and says something that we should consider about God the Father. He, says the writer of Hebrews, the one by whom all things exist. That is, don't forget that God the Father is the creator of everything and of everyone. Furthermore, says the writer of Hebrews, God the Father is also the one for whom all things exist. That is, all things were made for him, or we might say all things were made for his pleasure. Let me suggest an example. You know, some time ago I had a conversation with someone who was remarking of the many amazing intricacies that must exist in the farthest reaches of the galaxy, and yet no one sees them, he said. And I responded that God sees them and that they, along with everything else, that was created was for him, not for us, for him. He doesn't have to share them with us, for they were created for him. And that's also true in the complexities and wonders on this amazing planet called Earth. And it's especially true when it comes to us as human beings. We're not our own, we were made for him. Now here's what the author of Hebrews is saying. This God, creator and owner of all things, decided that he would bring many sons to glory. That simply means that the creator who does all things for his delight was delighted in the creation of the universe, that then he would also create a company of men and women whom he would bring to glory and that they would be his sons. Now stop here and consider what we, his redeemed humanity, are called, sons. So if it helps sons and daughters. Now when the word sons and only sons is mentioned, it's not meant to exclude women. But only sons are mentioned because the use of the word sons is meant to conjure up the image of adoption. You see, in the ancient world, Roman elites, people in the Roman nobility, families of great influence, power, wealth, they would bequest their power to their oldest son. Now, what of the family that didn't have a son? Well, the answer was they would look around for a noble young man who might come from a poor family, And they'd adopt that young man, and so that young man would become the heir of the new family fortune. And that's what is meant by the word sons. God had intended to bring many sons, adopted heirs to glory. But how would unworthy men and women, sinners, rebels against God, people who lived for themselves and rejected the purposes of God, be made into sons, adopted heirs of all things? It seems impossible that such an adoption would even take place. Imagine it in this way. You're a wealthy and powerful Lord in Rome. Indeed, you're so great that you become the emperor to whom the entire world is subject. Now you're looking around for a worthy heir and you find that no one worthy is found. How can an heir be found? For you need someone who is truly worthy. Well, take that image to God the Father. How can he take unworthy, treasonous people and make them his heirs? Answer, they need a savior to make them worthy heirs. And such a savior has been found. He's Jesus, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of the divine, the one who upholds the universe by his power. Now let's get to the word fitting again. It's fitting, it's proper, it's right, it's consistent with what we would expect of the great God, that he would make the founder of the salvation of the heirs perfect through suffering. Now, in the ancient world, that was earth-shattering, that God would send the infinitely glorious one to earth, and that he would make him perfect, that is, the perfect savior through suffering. Well, that was a scandal. That was an outrage. How can that be fitting at all?
0: Back to the Bible Canada is wrapping up another fiscal year. And what a year it's been god's blessing on this ministry has been so evident and and we're humbled to carry out the mission entrusted to back to the bible canada you can continue to depend upon our daily bible teaching broadcast with dr john and his weekly video series new international partnerships have been established giving us the privilege of playing a role in presenting the gospel around the world but none of these incredible advancements would be possible without the faithful support Of our listeners. Your generosity sustains this ministry, and together the gospel is being propelled into every corner of this country and beyond. To find out more about the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, remember to check us out at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1 800 663 2425.
1: One of the most tragic doctrines in Islam is in their denial that Jesus died on a cross. You see, Islam teaches that it is not fitting. It's not proper. It's not in keeping with correct protocol that a prophet of God should die such a horrible death. Surely God would save the prophet from the cross. So, Islam commonly teaches that God saved Jesus from the cross and may even have substituted someone else to go to the cross in his place. So, do you hear it? Islam says, It's not fitting at all. But let me not just pick on Islam. Liberal Christianity says the same. They argue that while it is true that Jesus did die on a cross, that it's not true that on the cross Jesus suffered the wrath of God for the sins of his people. Such a thing, they say, that's an outrage. It would, in their own words, be divine child abuse to say that. It's not fitting. And so for liberal Christians, Jesus' death on the cross is an example of evil, or, you know, it's an example of passive non-resistance to evil, or it's even an example of sacrificial love. But it's not an example of penal substitutionary atonement. That, they say, is not fitting. So do you see, what Hebrews 2.10 says is still as inflammatory as it was in the first century. So let's read our text again. For it was fitting that he, "...for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering." So it was fitting and appropriate and in keeping with God's nature. Now, before we move on, one more item. Notice here that Jesus is called the founder of their salvation. So that word, well, it's also been translated as the initiator or even the originator. The NIV translates that word as the author... One possible translation is the champion. Jesus is not only the one who originates our salvation, he is the great hero of our salvation. That is, a great company of men and women were made to be heirs of the kingdom of God to come and the heirs of all the works of God through a strong champion who overcame impossible obstacles in order to make us worthy of God. See, at the outset, we would have said it's impossible to make sinners into sons and daughters of God, because those sinners are too twisted. They're too prone to rebel. They're too given to attitudes, completely inconsistent with becoming an heir. No noble in his right mind would have chosen an unworthy adopted heir, but God, the greatest noble, the one for whom everything exists, he had a strong champion who made the impossible the possible. So please don't pass over that point. Oh, the insanity of the day we live in. See, most people today assume they're just going to heaven. They assume they can live their lives on their own terms. They can violate the rules of God, and they can still be heirs of the kingdom to come. That's because, well, they're self-indulgent, and they live in a dream world of their own making. That's a world of madness. God is not so silly as to adopt them, and he certainly doesn't owe it to them. All things don't exist for human beings. All things exist for God. If you think everyone is getting saved, you need to get a grip on reality. You don't understand God at all. But in great love and mercy, God has chosen to adopt his own. But this couldn't be accomplished without a mighty champion, Jesus. So let's move to verse 11a. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. And another way of saying that is to say both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. Look, that's the role of the champion Jesus. He's the one who takes hellbound, rebellious, self-indulgent, law-breaking, God-hating sinners, and he sanctifies them. He makes the unholy into the holy. But here's the jaw-dropping statement. The ones who are made holy and the one who makes them holy belong to the same family. Now, now how is that? To put it plainly, how is Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, one family with unholy sinners? Let's be plain. There's a great gulf, a wide separation between the one who makes people holy and the ones who are made holy. The ones who are being made holy, well, they're the ones who at one time were unholy. You know, in contrast, the one who makes men and women holy, he's always been holy. That's what the Bible plainly teaches. 1 Peter 2, verse 22 says of Jesus, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Or Hebrews 4:15, passage we're going to discuss later. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who who is in every respect being tempted as we are yet without sin. So please notice the difference between Jesus and us. Jesus needed no redemption. For as he lived his life on earth, he never, never disobeyed the Father. We did. He perfectly kept every part of the law of God. We didn't. He was in every way pleasing to his heavenly Father. In contrast, we've sinned. We've fallen short of the glory of God. Please, although in the next section, Hebrews will make clear. That Jesus became fully man. Please don't compare his moral life with your immoral life. There's a great gulf fixed between the way he lived his life and the way we've lived ours. Again, how are we made one family? And the answer is that the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy share one thing in common. Are you ready for it? What is it that we share in common? Answer, we share in holiness. Oh, we might protest. You know, Christ's holiness is perfect. It was forever perfect. But ours is always polluted by our own sin. We're not, even after we're saved, perfect in holiness, not by a long stretch. 1 John 1, verse 8, it speaks to believers. It speaks to saved individuals. And it says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So we're called upon to daily confess our sins, to daily seek the power of the Holy Spirit, to give us the strength to walk in conformity to God's will. But let's be brutally honest, our track record is not even close to being like Christ. How ah, but there's so much more to be said. It was a 16th century catechism that said, No, in this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of disobedience. If we fall into sin, our holiness is soiled. However, there is no need to stay unclean. For Jesus Christ, who shares our human nature, stands ready to cleanse us and make us holy. Let me add to that. Christ gives us his holiness, and for that reason, we have one source for holiness. It is Christ. His holiness is in him. Our holiness is in him, and this binds us eternally to him. We're one. So let's continue to read our text, verse 11b. This is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Don't you see? This solidarity in holiness between Jesus and those whom he has made holy results in a bond, in an unbreakable tie between the one who makes men holy and the one who are made holy. In graciousness, Jesus is not ashamed at all to call the ones he makes holy brothers, brothers and sisters. He declares we belong to one family. We are the family of holiness. Listen to what Paul says in Titus 2, 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. Yeah, we don't do it perfectly, but the grace of Christ continues to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Christ declares he is, as man, a family with all those whom he has made holy. And by the way, that should put to rest that we can be in Christ's family and not be committed to holiness. Now let's go to the last part of our passage, Hebrews 211 b to 13. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise, and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. So in order to make the case that Jesus is of one family with all believers, or that Jesus is the older brother to all believers, we're given two quotes. First one from Psalm 22 verse 22. That Psalm begins with the words that are repeated by Jesus on the cross. Those words are, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Indeed, the first 21 verses of this Psalm parallels Jesus suffering while he was on the cross. But in verse 22, we see that the one who suffers look forward to a spiritual family that will come about from his suffering. It sees that the one suffering proclaims the name of God among the brothers, the spiritual family that is created through his suffering. Then the second First Testament quotation, and that comes from Isaiah 8, verse 18. The context of that passage is that Isaiah is promised that his children— and he are signs that are given of God's deliverance of the people of Judah in the same way says the writer of Hebrews Jesus and his children the ones he has purchased by his blood are the signs that God has delivered his own so let's get back to the matter that we started with this passage is a declaration that Jesus really is the heir of all things he inherits all things that belong to the father but that's not the end Jesus, by his suffering, has purchased a spiritual family, and that's us. He's our older brother, to be sure. But as members of his family, we, together with him, inherit the kingdom that is to come. Let me put it plainly. This passage means that everything that belongs to Jesus, with the exception of his deity, now belongs to us. You inherit the kingdom along with your older brother, Jesus, and that's why we must never abandon Jesus. If we abandon him, we've abandoned holiness.
0: Thanks so much, John. Let me ask you, how do we understand that you and I and everyone around us who believes in the Lord and Jesus have the same holiness in common?
1: Yeah, I mean, if uh, the holiness is something that originates from us, then it's not true. But if our only holiness originates from Christ and that we're united with him, then our union with Christ gives us the same holiness that he has and the same holiness that we share with all our brothers and sisters
0: in Christ. It is Christ's holiness, not ours. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Priceless Treasure of Jesus, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, and Bible teaching you can trust. Have you ever wanted to spend time in fellowship with Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Phil Calloway, or even the leadership team behind them? Well, this is your chance. We invite you to join us on a cruise from April 5th to the 14th of 2024. Kicking off in Miami, we'll sail through several stunning locations within the Caribbean. The beautiful scenery combined with the Bible teaching of Dr. John, spiritual encouragement of Laugh Phil Calloway, and feature musical guests is a recipe for the vacation of a lifetime. This is a time to be refreshed on so many levels. So for more information, to download the itinerary, visit backtothebible.ca, call us at 1-800-663-2425. And please note that with all ministry travel events, no ministry funds are spent. All related costs are covered by participants.